And now to introduce today's speaker, we are joined by Dr. Carmen Kendall, a family practice physician and medical director of the Providence COVID Recovery Clinic, which opened in May 2021. Dr. Kendall joined Providence in 2005 after working in a community clinic setting for a year and a half. She practiced for 13 years at PMG Aranco before moving to the staffing department in 2018 and then worked primarily for the virtual sick clinic during the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Kendall is married with two adult sons and a golden retriever. She enjoys hiking, gardening, and being with family. Dr. Kendall, thanks so much for bringing um, this still growing area of expertise uh, and talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me today. As I was preparing this talk, I was struck again by how much we truly don't know yet about this condition that's affecting uh, millions of people around the world. I think it's a situation we've never been in before and requires keeping an open mind and uh, empathy as well. So what I would, let's see if I can get this slide. What I'd like to do during the talk is give you a sense of definition of long COVID, uh, talk about the prevalence and the demographics, some of the risk factors we know might predispose to getting long COVID, the common symptoms and the triggers for those symptoms. In terms of mechanisms, we know some things, we suspect others. Uh, I'll run through some of those with regard to some of the more common symptoms we see. I'll talk a little bit about our clinic, which opened a year ago, May, um, and a little bit about the role of primary care in managing these patients. Patient education is a huge part of this, and I'll give a couple of ex examples of that and briefly address the economic and social impact we're looking at with this condition. I don't have any conflicts of interest to disclose. The Atlantic has done, I think, a beautiful job of covering the pandemic throughout. And this is a statement from this year regarding long COVID. I'm just gonna read it. Researchers have known for many months that long COVID is more a category than a monolith. Long COVID has hundreds of possible symptoms. It can batter the brain, the heart, the lungs, the gut, all of the above or none of the above. The condition can start from a silent infection, an ICU caliber case, or anything in between. It can begin days, weeks, or months after the virus first infects someone, <clears throat> and its severity can fluctuate over time. We lump all that into one broad thing. It is not. And I think that's reflected in the attempt to label this. Um, you'll hear all kinds of terms used to describe what this is. Today, I'm going to use primarily long COVID, but you might hear any of these used to describe what these patients are going through. I noticed uh, the CDC seems to have opted for post-COVID condition recently. The NHS in England came out with this definition back in October of 2020. I think they were ahead of us and remain ahead of us in many respects with regard to long COVID. Signs and symptoms developing during or following a COVID illness that continue for more than 12 weeks that can't be explained by an alternative diagnosis, usually in clusters, often overlapping, and the symptoms can change over time and affect any system within the body. 
the WHO in October of last year came out with a little more convoluted definition, um, history of probable or confirmed COVID infection, symptoms appearing within three months from the onset and lasting for at least two months that can't be explained by an alternative diagnosis, maybe new onset uh, following initial recovery or persist from the initial illness, and can, the symptoms can fluctuate or relapse over time. And then uh, most recently, the Center for Disease Control came out with this generalized statement that standardized case definitions are still being developed. Uh, Post-COVID conditions are considered a lack of return to the usual state of health following COVID illness, might also include development of newer recurrent symptoms that can occur after the acute illness has resolved. So you can see that there are attempts to put this in a box and it's very difficult to do. This is sort of how I've come to think of it in working with our patients, which is um, thinking of acute COVID as roughly the first month of symptoms, ongoing symptomatic COVID potentially the next two months, and then after 90 days, thinking of it more as a long-term issue or long COVID. This is sort of helpful. And um, as a result, our clinic now sees hospitalized patients coming out of the hospital, we will see it a month out. Folks who have um, a more uh, a milder course of illness, we can see it 60 days or beyond. And for instance, OHSU's program does not see patients until 90 days out from acute illness. In July of 21, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act was modified to include long COVID as a disability potentially worthy of accommodations. Uh, mixed results on whether employers are uh, paying attention to this. This is just a sampling of what you will see in the in the lay press. Um, this is from a patient advocacy website called Survivor Corps, which now has uh, probably 200,000 members or more. They um, keep track of, of um, studies and media like this, and this is just to show that there is attention everywhere to this problem and concern. This seems to be the obligatory long COVID um, picture that you will see in many lectures or pre presentations on long COVID. It's busy, but it is to show that multiple body systems are affected, um, potentially really any system. Fatigue remains the most prominent symptom we see, and headache, as you'll see, is right up there as well. But many other things can occur as well. So how prevalent is this? Uh, we don't know for sure. It's not a difficult measurement to make. Uh, the CDC came out actually last week with an estimate uh, shown below with uh, thinking about 20% of folks between the ages of 18 and 64 are showing at least one symptom um, 90 days or more out from acute illness. 25% of our older population, ages 65 and older. So obviously when you look at the number of confirmed cases and think of all the unconfirmed cases, and even thinking that this could be 10% instead of 20 or 25, the numbers are really daunting. Who is affected? 
This spares no one. Um, all ages are affected by this. It does appear that women more so than men. We don't know why exactly. Uh, obviously, we see more autoimmune disorders in women than men. Is it, is it who's seeking health care? We're not sure. It appears that all virus variants can result in long COVID potentially. We uh, in our clinic are currently seeing a lot of people who were sick early this year, presumably with Omicron. It's more often going to be seen in patients who have had severe COVID illness. So we have to think about our populations that suffered the most during this pandemic. How are we helping them access care for long COVID? Sometimes these are the populations that have the most difficulty with that. Uh, so it, it is more prevalent with severe illness, but can occur regardless of severity of acute COVID and appears to even be possible in asymptomatic infection with COVID. It can also occur in both unvaccinated and vaccinated patients. This um, information came out recently from a very large Veterans Affairs study that looked at about 34,000 people who had had at least, uh, I believe they'd all had two mRNA vaccines or one J&J &J and had a breakthrough COVID case. The vaccine continues to be very effective in prevention of death, death and serious illness. But unfortunately, it does not look like it has hugely protective effects against long COVID. We thought this number was more like 50% protection. Um, it looks more like 15% reduction in risk of, of long COVID. Um, and this seems to be jibing with findings in the UK and Israel. This did not involve the idea of having had a booster shot. Unfortunately, it looks like this also affects children. There is a lot of disagreement on how we define long COVID in children as it has been with adults. It's difficult to put in a box. Um, certainly disagreement on the prevalence with some people saying it's very low prevalence in children and others not being convinced of that. We obviously have less PCR testing in children and less research. Uh, to adequately research this, we need confirmed cases. We often don't have that with children. And of course, in kids as well as adults, we rely on self-reporting, which in a five-year-old can be a challenge or a three-year-old. Um, it does seem to be more affecting more of the preteen and teen population, perhaps because they can tell us their symptoms. Tests as in adults will often appear normal in these kids and they can have multiple symptoms. Uh, this little girl clutching her head reflects that we see a lot of headache in, in kids. Uh, there has been a general increase in mental health needs in children during the pandemic and that overlaps with some of the mental health concerns that come with COVID. That can be hard to weed through. And then I, I don't think we're doing an adequate job of prevention with children. Um, the data I looked at from the 25th of May, uh, we had only managed to vaccinate 29% of five to 11 year olds with two doses. Uh, 12 to 17 year olds were 59%. And this varies widely across the states. A study came out in January in the journal Cell that 
clarified four known risk factors for long COVID that can be detected at the time of diagnosis. And this includes the viral RNA load, certain autoantibodies, uh, history of type 2 diabetes, and reactivated Epstein-Barr virus. A lot of patients will ask about being tested for Epstein-Barr if they think they have long COVID. So the significance here is if there's something, is there something we could address at um, the time of diagnosis that might prevent long COVID? We're not there yet. This is an example of one of the more sort of sad cases we might see in our clinic where a previously healthy 24-year-old female grad student who was a runner, a hiker, cyclist, uh, got sick in 2020, um, had a relatively normal flu-like illness for two to three weeks, but then tried to return to school and continued to have fatigue, shortness of breath, doing things like walking from the parking garage or climbing the stairs, along with postural symptoms of dizziness and tachycardia. Um, she was also unable to do basic academic activities like concentrating on her reading, working on the computer, writing. She had memory lapses and frequent headaches. So like many healthy people who get sick with COVID and have been told for years to exercise, she tried to push herself back to good health by increasing her activity and found herself having these crashes of two to three days where she had to recover. She also had some mood changes with depression, anxiety, and a lot of um, despair about her future and whether she, her life had been thrown off, off track. The most common symptoms I will run through, these are probably things many of you have had patients tell you they have. Again, fatigue is, is number one, and it's a really debilitating fatigue. Um, it is not a fatigue that is improved with a good nap, typically. They will often have some residual respiratory symptoms, but not everyone has this, shortness of breath and cough. We see a lot of um, odd pain, complaints of pain. These can be electric shocks, tremors, pins and needles, uh, sense of vibrations, muscle aches, burning, and this coat hanger pain that is kind of in the distribution of a coat hanger shape at the back of the neck and upper shoulders. We hear a lot about chest pain or tightness. We don't yet know why this occurs. Often the cardiac studies look fine and it's very often not exertional. The um, cognitive issues we just talked about, headache. Headache can be very hard to treat. It often doesn't respond to typical uh, NSAIDs, migraine medications, migraine prophylaxis. It's, it's a toughie. You have probably heard the term dysautonomia used with regard to long COVID. And um, I wanted to mention that that can include some of the GI symptoms we see, the diarrhea, upset stomach, a loss of appetite. The loss of smell, I'm gonna talk about in a little more detail um, briefly but or shortly, but um, that has now become one of the indicators of acute COVID. It, when we first you know, were trying to look for acute COVID, it was all about fever. 
um, loss of smell now appears to occur, occur in many patients within about four days and um, can be of long duration. We see mood changes. We, um, that's been a huge part of our program is addressing those postural symptoms. PEM refers to post-exertional malaise, which is what our 24-year-old had when she tried to push herself physically, needing this extended recovery time, sometimes from something as simple as going to Costco or taking the kid to the soccer game. We see ringing in ears. We see menstrual changes in women, amenorrhea, uh, dysmenorrhea, menorrhagia, irregular cycles, um, some uterine effects, and then certainly skin rash and hair loss are a couple that we hear frequently as well. So the studies are often normal. Uh, patients often come to us with normal echoes, Holter monitors, EKGs, PFTs, chest imaging, uh, brain imaging, normal labs, everything looks great. The patients don't feel great. And for us, this can be a source of um, reassurance, uh, feeling better about where the patient is. For them, it can be a source of frustration. Uh, they are looking for an explanation for why they're feeling so poorly. And the normal studies don't provide that. From Mount Sinai's program, which has been around quite a while, they started about a year ahead of us. Um, they have been able to collect enough data to know that the biggest symptom trigger for these folks is exertion. And so that highlights the importance of being very cautious in how we encourage these patients to return to activity. Uh, other triggers that are prominent include stress, dehydration, extremes of temperature, hot shower, hot tub, cold air, those things can, can trigger the symptoms. Large meal consumption, going out to a nice restaurant may trigger this. And again, uh, there seems to be a menstrual or cyclic component for women, often at different times of the cycle. It does not seem uniform whether this is premenstrual, early cycle, mid-cycle, it just is. And alcohol consumption is not your friend with long COVID. So what the heck's going on here is the big question. And the more we look at this, the more it seems like there are a combination of things that may help explain this, or it may come down that it's caused differently for different patients. Different patients have different etiologies. We know COVID is extremely inflammatory. There is presumably some degree of chronic inflammation. We think there could be residual virus uh, in the system, genetic material. Microclotting is a, um, something that could be occurring due to vascular injury and epithelial inflammation, perhaps causing some of the weird, um, almost mini stroke symptoms we see sometimes. There's an impact of psychological factors. There's the vicious cycle of the symptoms creating a heightened state of anxiety and sympathetic activation, which feeds back into more symptoms. Certainly there's impairment of the nervous system. I'm continually impressed by the, the neurologic symptoms we see in here. And with regard to the immune system, there seems to be likely an autoimmune component for many people, an overactive, misfunctioning, malfunctioning immune system. For some, it may be that there's an underactive immune system not clearing the virus.
this was a diagram given to me by a colleague at OHSU's long COVID program, just to emphasize some of the effects as, as SARS enters our cells through the ACE2 receptors, it's hijacking our mitochondria. So when you think about what that could mean in terms of inflammation, energy production, immunity, um, that, that all as the mitochondria are damaged and dysfunctional, all of those things are gonna happen. So I think this could certainly contribute to the, an understanding of energy deficits in our patients with the dysfunctional mitochondria kicking people into early anaerobic glycolysis, like they've run a half marathon, but they've just climbed the stairs. Um, they've got less ATP, they've got more lactic acid, is that contributing to the burning pain and muscles? And then a, this very low threshold to be fatigued and dysmic and have muscle pain, myalgia. We hear this all the time. I'm exhausted. I can't breathe when I go up the stairs. And then how might this affect the brain with the body perceiving the damaged mitochondrial DNA as, as a threat? Um, that's potentially going to trigger immune activation and more inflammation. And we believe that there is neuroinflammation as well that can affect the brain's function and lead to some of the cognitive changes. Again, this is um, possible, but not known for sure. This was interesting. This is a, a study that just was came out in April related to loss of smell. And it's unusual in the sense that it's a post-mortem study on uh, 37 different uh, patients, 23 of whom had COVID, confirmed COVID. And at some point there had been a documented loss of smell, either recalled by their family members or perhaps mentioned in clinical notes. So they were able to collect data that these patients had had loss of smell. It does occur early, so that's possible. Um, and what they found was they, they focused on the olfactory bulb and uh, nasal tract tissue and found that there was significant damage to the olfactory bulb, axons lost and injured, vascular injury. This did not appear associated again with severity of illness. And it also didn't seem associated with the presence of virus in the olfactory tissue. Of the 23 patients, only three were found to have virus um, present in the tissue, and two were of, of those three were very low viral load. So this damage to the olfactory bulb could conceivably be severe enough that this is a permanent injury. Uh, for most patients, it doesn't seem to be permanent, but they can have months of impaired smell and thus taste. Uh, so we're looking at inflammation in the axons and the blood vessels supplying the olfactory bulb and the system. Um, inadequate blood supply, possibly interesting. The UK Biobank had the benefit of having MRI results prior, brain MRI results prior to the pandemic, and was able to find uh, 785 participants, 400 of whom, 401, who had had COVID, confirmed COVID with mild illness. Um, and then 384 matched controls with no history of COVID. So they had a pre-pandemic brain MRI to look at, and then roughly 
three years later, were able to repeat the brain MRIs. This was on average 141 days after COVID was diagnosed. And there was there were findings. Um, there was, was a reduction in gray matter thickness and changes uh, reflecting tissue damage. And again, these were seemed to be in regions connected to the olfactory system and also to memory and recall. They also saw a greater reduction in global brain size compared to uh, the patients who had not had COVID. <clears throat> so this was sobering, certainly. This is just a little sidelight. We, we use the colloquial term brain fog in talking to patients, and it does seem to be something they understand and recognize. But this statement is, is true, I believe. If people begin to think of this as a brain injury and not just as brain fog, they'll be more inclined to do what we do with people with brain injuries. Namely, we refer them to cognitive rehabilitation experts who can help them. Uh, with mild brain injuries, many of these people get substantially better, but people don't think necessarily of cognitive rehab for brain fog. So when we refer to our colleagues who work with our patients, we typically will use cognitive communication deficit as our diagnosis, not brain fog. Um, it is a, a term patients understand, certainly. I wanted to mention the postural symptoms of long COVID. This is from uh, a cardiology electrophysiology clinic in the UK where they see long COVID patients. And this 31-year-old woman had the symptoms mentioned at the left, dizziness, lightheadedness, fatigue. This was postural when she was sitting or standing and when she was premenstrual. This is a tilt table reading with time along the x-axis and heart rate on the y-axis at the bottom, blood pressure at the top. What he points out here is the um, obvious rise in heart rate around six minutes when she's tilted more upright, and also the dramatic oscillations in the blood pressure, um, which are very frequent. This may or may not be something we pick up on in our clinics doing orthostatics and even uh, poor man's tilt tables. We don't use tilt tables with our clinic. They're hard to access and don't tend to change the way that we um, initially treat these patients. Um, so we have not been employing that tool, but I found these interesting. And this was an example of other long COVID patients with varying looks to their tracings, a pretty consistent postural tachycardia and just these really widely fluctuating um, blood pressures. We have not in our patients typically seen a lot of postural hypotension. We do see the postural tachycardia. And a lot of people focus on whether this is POTS or not, postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome, which requires 30 beats per minute rise in pulse uh, as you stand up in adults, 40 beats per minute in teens. They may or may not qualify as being labeled with POTS, but it seems most important that we think about the physiology of this and the symptoms, which are really debilitating. The process of what's going on here seems to be uh, a decrease in plasma volume, 
accompanied then by a decrease in stroke volume from the heart and a decrease sometimes in blood pressure when upright, although we haven't seen that very often in a lot of our patients, we do see the tachycardia. This sets off then potentially the baroreceptors and the adrenergic system, the fight or flight, giving the patient the reactive tachycardia, lower extremity vasoconstriction, uh, and the sensation of dyspnea, whether they are actually hypoxic or not. Usually their, their oxygen looks fine. Um, I wanted to also mention that the adrenergic system then can also contribute to the anxiety, the insomnia we see in these patients, sweating disorders or abnormal sweating and affected digestion. So I wanted to talk just a little about addressing this um, in the long COVID clinics in general and in ours. The approach that has been most effective is to have a multidisciplinary team with a number of different options so that each patient can have um, a plan of care that fits their needs. Our particular team has these members in it. Um, I, I can't think of anyone on this list that hasn't contributed to our, um, our care of these patients. And I wanted to um, just give you a sense of what our visits are like. The doctors who do intake visits do a thorough chart review, looking at COVID history and any evaluation that's been done since the time of the COVID illness. Many times this is a presumed COVID illness without a positive test result, especially if patients were sick in 2020, we may or may not have a test result. And sometimes even later than that, they may or may not opt to test. So a lot of it is based on history, a lot of therapeutic listening in patients who need to be heard. Many of them, especially who were ill early, have felt like they have not been heard or understood. Um, they need to they need to speak. So we spend a lot of time listening. Uh, the care plan is based on each patient's needs, and we certainly try to communicate with the primary care providers so we're all on the same page. We very often schedule a follow-up visit to check back in. It's a lot of information to throw at a patient in one visit, and you need to think about checking back in and reiterating some of the things you've told them. With our physical therapy providers, who have been absolutely vital to our team. Um, they have been a, a huge source of education for our patients. We're really trying to teach them to manage these symptoms and to prevent the post-exertional malaise. We focus a huge amount on energy management and pacing of activity. And returning to exercise can be a real trick, um, needs sometimes to be extremely slow. There can be setbacks that discourage the patient. Sometimes we start patients in supine position or sitting, um, and we do a lot of work with breathing. Um, breath work seems to be employed globally with long COVID and is really important. Um, sometimes in helping them stabilize the postural symptoms so that they can then exercise. This provides us an opportunity for in-person evaluation of how they're doing. We do most of these visits in person, our providers do. Uh, sometimes we have the option of virtual visits if they cannot leave their homes. Uh, and again, these guys have been a huge part of educating our patients. We've really sought to provide the patients with a consistent message across our team. I 
mentioned at the bottom, PT services are fantastic if there is difficulty with access or availability. The primary care provider really needs to be equipped to have this conversation with patients and perhaps provide them with some online resources with some gentle exercise and breath work. Mental health, huge part of our team. We have a very engaged behavioral health provider who put together group visits for our patients, virtual group visits. And these are the topics that she has developed over time related to long COVID recovery. Um, she addresses the topic in uh, some education at the beginning of the visit. There's some interchange between the patients and a meditative sort of mindful moment toward the end. A lot of patients have found this very helpful. Some of them feel very isolated, misunderstood, um, and frankly, just don't feel good. And knowing that there are others out there um, going through the same thing has been super helpful for a lot of a lot of our patients. In terms of brain rehabilitation, I did not expect this when the clinic opened, but we have employed our speech language pathology providers hugely. They are uniquely equipped to deal with the idea of uh, brain injury, concussion, uh, stroke, post chemo. Um, and those are some of the same approaches we're using with the cognitive changes with long COVID. They also are emphasizing a lot of pacing and energy management and then providing a lot of coping strategies for these patients to use at home or if they are returning to work. And again, this is another discussion that I think primary care providers need to be able to have with their patients, potentially um, checking in and providing some tools uh, based on the memory issues and so forth that patients have. So as a primary care provider, I, I wanted to provide some thoughts about what you could do if a patient comes in and, or says they think they might have long COVID. First of all, just reading what's out there about this, there is just a ton of information with a lot of unknowns, but at least being able to have a conversation about long COVID is important. I think a dedicated visit for this issue is helpful. It can be emotional. It can take some time to work through the history and figure out where people are. Um, obviously, we have to rule out other medical issues. So a lot of people that come to us from their primary providers have already had some form of workup because they have things like chest pain or fatigue. And that involves the clinical judgment of, of the provider. In um, I do think it is fair in a lot of patients to have a fairly conservative approach in the first 90 days, unless you have concern about something like myocarditis, pericarditis, et cetera. Um, and then you can start to address the long COVID symptoms. Even potentially at the first visit, you can provide patients with some tools to manage things like postural symptoms. Um, and I'll talk about that in just a bit. We need to assess their support structure. This is uh, potentially traumatic, especially for patients who have been hospitalized, perhaps in the ICU. I had a gentleman the other day who'd been on ECMO he, um, you know, that these folks have been through a lot. And so we need to make sure they have a support structure around them. You may choose to refer to your clinic's behavioral health. 
We can provide online resources, assuming they can access those, they can be helpful. Uh, we often have to support medical leave. And I think it's fair to say that a 10 day to two week leave in a lot of these patients very often isn't enough. We're finding ourselves uh, doing six week, eight week, sometimes longer leaves for these patients to recover. That's a more reasonable amount of time for this problem. We need to be careful in setting expectations for recovery. We don't know for a lot of these folks what the future holds, and we just need to be cautious about not, um, not setting expectations we can't help them fulfill. We always need to think about addressing vaccination um, for sure, and that seems to go without saying. This, uh, again, the Brits were a little ahead of us. This came out in, in the BMJ in 2020. It's very busy, but it gives you a sense of what primary care is looking at when they see these patients, what sort of things need to be considered, where you might go with this. Um, I, I think it is, a lot of it is clinically obvious to providers, but it is, does show that they've thought through this. So for instance, the first visit for this, you could speak potentially with your patients about the postural symptoms and some very simple changes they could be making like aggressive hydration with electrolytes, uh, waist high compression. When, when we talk about hydration, by the way, we're talking about aggressive hydration, two to three liters a day, the equivalent of maybe 50% of that having some electrolyte replacement roughly two teaspoons of salt, if you want to think of it that way. Clearly, if that's not indicated because of other health issues, you need to avoid it. But really aggressive attempt to increase plasma volume. Waist-high compression, it does not appear that knee-high socks are sufficient. Uh, we need to put squeeze around the pelvic and abdominal area. And so we recommend things like compression tights, abdominal binders, biking shorts, that sort of thing. Um, there are some counter pressure maneuvers you can give them to use if they're having acute symptoms. These can be helpful, the dizziness and so forth, uh, just basically um, uh, activating skeletal muscles in various ways. So we can only begin to imagine the potential economic impact with this. When you think about the cost of treating acute COVID, and then extending into long COVID with potential workup for a number of symptoms, seeing multiple specialists, et cetera, the healthcare costs are um, daunting, I think. In combination, a lot of these folks concurrently cannot return to work or at least are having to go on reduced schedules. And then they may or may not have a system for paid medical leave. Oftentimes they don't, and that can be extremely stressful. You'll get a lot of pressure from patients that they need to go back to work, they need to feel better sooner, and it simply isn't possible. So um, this will have a great impact, I think. I really think it already is on our workforce. This is from David Petrino, who works out of Mount Sinai, and he's very passionate about the care of these patients. He says the system is gearing itself against individuals with long COVID, and that makes them sicker and sicker over time, causing them so much stress and exertion as they're trying to get care that it actually makes the condition worse. The social impact of this probably goes without saying. 
a lot of people lose the things that mean the most to them, the pastimes that they were doing prior to having COVID. Um, we hear very often parents who feel like they're parenting inadequately since they had COVID and long COVID. Uh, they feel guilty about that. Sometimes life goals can feel like they've been derailed, um, as, as with our graduate student I mentioned. And relationships can suffer, I think, not just with friends, but with family and, and spouses. Um, it can be stressful and difficult. And many people, I think, isolate when they're feeling these symptoms. They don't necessarily want to share them with others. And sometimes they're fearful to go back out and potentially get another case of COVID. So a few takeaways. I believe we are understating and ignoring the risks of long COVID in our public health messaging. I hear a lot about uh, how benign a lot of the Omicron infections seem and that they're gone quickly. But again, if you think in terms of the potential for long COVID, uh, we really need to be mentioning that at some level, that that is a risk. Uh, the numbers are going up, not down, possibly because we're more aware of the condition and more people are seeking help. Um, and really, you have probably gotten the impression by now, which is accurate, that because there's no magic bullet for this, we really are seeking to stabilize the symptoms with this multidisciplinary approach. That is how most of the programs are working right now. And uh, certainly we have hopes that there will be more targeted therapy. I personally wonder if we will start breaking long COVID down into different subsets that can be addressed more specifically. But again, we're not there yet. And primary prevention remains key. We still need to emphasize vaccination prevention of COVID. If you don't get COVID, you won't get long COVID. So I just want to really thank you for listening. I hope that you will keep this on your radar. Um, it is very much out there. And if you're finding that patients have no other explanation for some odd symptoms that they're having that may or may not be keeping them out of work, think about whether there's a history um, of COVID and could it be that this is what they're going through? So I thank you again. I will take some questions if you have them. Great, thank you so much, Dr. Kendall, um, for just so much experience with this that you bring forward uh, and your thoughts to share. I'm sure that we'll have more questions start to trickle in, so thank you for leaving some time. Um, I'll go ahead and open uh, with, with one. Um, some symptoms, such as loss of smell, seem very specific to COVID, but so many others, as well as the demographics, resemble chronic fatigue, EBV, Lyme, POTS, Ehlers-Danlos, and others. Um, any thoughts regarding this? Um, perhaps difficulty with distinguishing the diagnosis and to what extent um, that matters? Yeah, that that is often mentioned that it has a lot of similarities to some of the things we've seen previously. Um, the difference, a uh, couple of differences. One is, I think, the sheer number of patients we're dealing with and the concurrence with the COVID pandemic. So um, I think we can use some of the same principles we have tried to use previously with MECFS and so forth. Um, but this seems to be its own animal. Um, what often happens is patients will feel like this has 
activated uh, previously existing chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, those sorts of things. And so it, it can be difficult to slap a label on it. I think it's fair to say that, that this is a post-viral effect related to COVID and that it could exacerbate pre-existing conditions, That's which could be things like Ehlers-Danlos and um, those sorts of things. Yes, thank you for your thoughts on that. Um, is there any data on use of early antivirals on the risk of subsequent development of long COVID? I don't know that we have that yet, um, given that we, I, I am not aware of any studies um, yet on that. Um, interestingly, there's a lot of thought going into using those antivirals for long COVID and whether that could be potentially effective. Um, but I don't have any data on um, whether the folks who got the Paxlovid and so forth are seeing less long COVID yet. Yes, thank you. Perhaps too early to know. Um, another comment and question here, uh, again, just speaking to the challenge and scope of this problem. Um, thanks so much for this helpful talk. My clinic has a case of a patient who has lost her job and therefore her insurance due to long COVID, and she continues to need care. What resources has your clinic found or offered patients in these circumstances? Oh, that is so hard. I really need to do a deep dive um, this week in what to do for patients like that because we do have patients losing their jobs. And I uh, do not have a list I can give you of resources for these patients. Um, there are some national um, websites for support. I, I need to look into them and see where they are at this point. So I'm sorry, I don't have anything specific to give you. That That is um, a real, um, gosh, a huge challenge. And that's when we really need to be able to potentially as primary care doctors step in and do the best we can at that level of care for these patients, even if it involves just checking in by phone. Um, of course, she's lost insurance, so um, that's tough, yeah. Yeah, a real challenge. Thank you for your thoughts and we'll look forward to continuing to share resources going forward. Um, we may circle back on that topic, but here's a separate question. Um, any thoughts on long COVID and which vaccine was received um, if happening in a prior vaccinated individual? So I believe the question relates to any connection between which vaccine a patient has received and yeah. Um, risk of long COVID. Yeah, um, I, I'm so sorry to have to say I don't know to the bulk of these questions, but we don't we don't know. Um, I, I'm not aware of any dramatic differences. In other words, clinics seeing many more patients who had J and J versus the mRNA vaccines. Uh, that has really not been in the literature, as far as I know. So uh, don't have anything to share on that. Uh, and, and no apology necessary for being uncertain to uh, the <laughs> answers of questions um, for questions which likely have um, no yet known answers. So thank you, Dr. Kendall. Um, I guess I would circle back a little bit on um, 
this is potentially a large population of patients um, and we often try to meet subspecialty care needs within primary care, often have established relationship. Um, are there any particular handouts or resources um, that you would suggest we, we use to, to better educate ourselves in primary care to be able to um, manage more straightforward cases ourselves? Yeah, I over time have, have put together a number of things that, that we give patients in our clinic um, kind of patched together from other long COVID clinics. Um, for instance, I will often direct patients towards some videos that came out of a long COVID program in Texas. So there is a lot of um, there's a lot of information out there. It may just be a matter of uh, us being able to share that with each other. The uh, Washington State actually did a nice job of putting together a sort of post-COVID packet for patients. Uh, I did not um, share that link today, but it's, uh, I believe, through their State Department of Health. And we don't seem to have anything equivalent in Oregon. I have looked at the OHA and so forth to see if um, they have anything on this, and, and I have not seen it. Bottom line, I would potentially think about putting together some quick texts, some um, uh, bits of information on what I spoke about today into something you can provide to patients, or I'm all, always happy to share what our clinic uses. Thank you so much, Dr. Kendall, for being a resource. Um, I'll shift to a next question, um, which I think is on the minds of many of us with regard to um, prognosis. Any comments on what percentage of your patients recover after six months, nine months, a year? Any typical patterns on recovery? I am going to to uh, default back to Mount Sinai, which is uh, has collected data on these patients now since mid-2020 and has a very large patient population. It would seem that, and again, this is all about setting or not setting expectations for patients, but it would seem that somewhere around six to nine months, many patients are turning a corner of some sort. Um, that is not probably a number you want to give to someone, but in the back of your head, you can think about how far out these patients are. We've also had patients who um, have been sick, got sick early in the pandemic and kind of turned a corner around two years. Um, now, whether that was them stabilizing and adjusting to their symptoms and their new status, or they actually had um, had a lot of improvement, that varies as well. So I'm sorry, again, not a, not a concrete answer. Our sense in our patients is there is a general trend toward improvement, and that's generally reflected as they drop off of our follow-up schedule. Uh, but we don't have numbers at this point. Now, thank you for those thoughts and also the importance um, with thinking about how we set expectations. Um, in a similar vein, this may be a difficult question to answer, but you commented earlier in your talk um, on ongoing COVID, um, generally defined as symptoms four to 12 weeks later. Um, any advice on what we might tell patients in that specific group with regard to waiting, expectations, um, thoughts there? 
Yeah, that that is hard, isn't it? Because they all want to feel better and sort of telling them that this is just normal recovery can be can be frustrating for them. I think you have to, again, during that period, you have to be thinking, is there something I need to work up in this patient? Is there something other than long COVID going on here, especially in that first 60 days or so? Uh, there does seem to be quite a benefit. Previously, we had seen patients at a month out, and there was some benefit, I will say, to having a really um, good discussion with the patient around four to six weeks about uh, potentially what could be going on here and, and the setting some boundaries with activity and so forth. So I think the discussion I would have during that period, assuming they are not showing signs of something more severe and needing more workup, is being very uh, providing a lot of education about gentle pacing activity, uh, rest, energy management, again, if they have postural symptoms, starting to address fluids and compression and electrolytes, some of those things can, can be addressed early. Um, but they're, they're not going to like it because they want to feel better and they want to get back to work. Yes, thank you. Um, that is uh, extremely helpful advice up front um, for often a difficult and stressful time. Um, we are coming up on the top of the order of the hour. I'll just peek back for any final questions. Um, I think, Dr. Kendall, that you have addressed our, our questions such as they are. Um, I, I know there are many more that will be forthcoming. Um, thanks again for your generosity, not in only standing up this clinic, but in being a resource for all of us. Um, we'll continue to, to look for more information. Um, Feel free to leave us with any um, parting parting thoughts before we sign off. Well, I, I guess what I would say is just to keep an open mind about this. Um, I think it's easy for us to look at this potentially as, as someone asked as very similar to something like chronic fatigue. Is it is it something that the patient is at some level um, uh, exaggerating or maybe not um, uh, actually experiencing. I think we need to listen to the patients. We've learned a ton from the patients on this. And so we really just need to keep an open mind and empathy for what these folks are going through. Thank you. I think that that thought rang um, through very clearly from the start. Um, and though I, I thought we were closing, Dr. Kendall, the, the questions do continue to trickle through. And since we have just a moment yet, and this may relate to your, your closing comments, um, are you finding um, that long COVID is being covered by short and long-term disability? You mentioned the, the code um, is now available for the diagnosis, but any thoughts on actual coverage? Mm. Yeah, it seems to, to be variable. I, I've been very disturbed, as Dr. Petrino was, by some of the denials I've seen. And Part of that, unfortunately, comes from the fact that we don't have abnormal studies. We don't, we can't present them with anything that they consider concrete. Um, a lot of it is so subjective. And so mixed results on that and can be really frustrating and hard. Um, well, thanks again for your advocacy and your care. Um, thanks to our audience for tuning in today. Um, we will see you for Grand Rounds next week. Thanks so much. Thanks.